Welcome to Redneck Theology. I'm your host, Bill Witte. On this program, I provide common sense, easy to understand teaching about Christianity, the Bible, and related issues. You are invited to ask questions or suggest topics you'd like to hear about by emailing me at redneckTheology, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Your name won't be mentioned and you won't be put on any mailing list. Now, on with the broadcast. I'm about to share some things with you in this podcast that may shock you. Some may shake their heads in disbelief. Doubtlessly, some will find themselves disappointed at the very least, and disappointed in me. Hopefully, you'll listen to the very end. Testimony generally has a slightly different meaning in Christian circles than in the secular world. The basic principles remain the same for both, but they tend to differ in subject matter. You know, people held in high regard for some aspect of their life may be asked to tell how they got to their current status. In some cases, folks may gather to celebrate an individual's life by giving testimonials where they highlight the influence the guest of honor had on their life or in some way on their personality or their success. In short, they testify. And when related to Christians giving a person's testimony, generally it means that they will explain how their life differs now from the way they previously lived and how God brought about the changes or made changes. I invite you now to listen as I share how a man spent decades in sexual sins, had multiple affairs, separated from his wife twice, faced possible divorce, lost his career, and found a new life reunited with his wife. I think it's a fantastic story of recovery. You see, it's my story. I'm now involved in a nationwide group, and we started to branch out in our church called Celebrate Recovery. When giving a testimony, we start by introducing ourselves and stating what we celebrate recovery from. You already know who I am. This is how I came to receive and now celebrate recovery from a lack of sexual integrity and nicotine addiction. I was born into a German Catholic family. Now, simply that means that the church teachings were strictly adhered to. None of my aunts, uncles, cousins, or other relatives attended any other church. Actually, two of my aunts were nuns, an uh, uncle and a cousin were priests, and one of my dad's best friends was a priest. Before I even started school, I knew I wanted to be a priest when I grew up. Back then, Catholic schools in our area started with first grade, so the only exposure I had to other children near my age and matter of fact, near my home, occurred during kindergarten. Then I would go to a parochial school. That was non-negotiable. My only non-Catholic friend, and matter of fact, the only friend that lived near me, was a non-Catholic, and he was a grade ahead of me. Not attending the public school, that made me kind of an outcast among the other kids in and around our neighborhood. The Catholic school actually started quite well. It was fun, and all of us in the class got along. Then he came to school. A second cousin I had never met before became part of the class. He was on the dirty side and smelled bad. His clothes were always wrinkled and often dirty. His hair was matted and oily. We shared the same last name, so there's no chance to deny him as part of the family. The kids in class, including me, started making fun of him almost immediately. 
It only took a few days before the cruel remarks started coming my way, too, since we shared the same last name. And my cousin took it better than I did. He somehow ignored much and took the rest in stride. Before long, he joined the others when jeers were aimed at me. In less than a week, he befriended most all our classmates, and I became the object of the badgering and bullying that we had previously directed toward him. I kept to myself as much as possible from there on. By fourth grade, it was unbearable. My parents finally moved me to one of the other parochial schools in town. I made a few friends, but was never exceedingly popular. The one friend in my neighborhood was the only real friend, confidant, and escape that I had. Now, with the onset of puberty, I found another escape. I had not been informed about the changes that take place at this point in life. In time, I had discovered masturbation. I didn't know what it was or what I was doing. It was pleasurable, but it seemed somehow like something I shouldn't tell anybody about. After eighth grade, the public school was the only educational opportunity available. And as I grew into adolescence, talking with other guys provided an abundance of misinformation about how boys and girls should interact. The television examples I had didn't help either. Many of the shows that were popular at that time are what we called sitcoms. If you're listening from somewhere, that's not a familiar term. It's short for situation comedies. The men were in charge. And the women, well, they were something to be used and controlled. Men made rude and sarcastic remarks to the women and about them. And people laughed, or at least a laugh track was inserted to make it sound like people were laughing. I grew up learning that's how women were to be treated. And when I finally got the right information on the mechanics of sex, women took on the additional quality of objects to be used for pleasures. And during this time, I developed a taste for porn, cigarettes, alcohol, and, and some drugs. At home, I was kind of withdrawn. My room was my place of refuge. I had a television, record player, radio, psychedelic lights on the wall. And when my parents and I got into one of our regular arguments about the volume, you know, how my lights ran up the electric bill or some element of my behavior, I'd escape to my room. Often I'd take a few pills and or drink some booze I'd have hidden just to get a buzz and tune out. When I turned 16 and got a job, I found more freedom, and that opened more doors for trouble. I got a car. Getting a girl was easier with a car, and by now I wanted a girl. It seemed like all the guys were having sex. I sought out a girl known to be easy, and I gave up my virginity in the back seat of my car. From then on, I couldn't get enough. After a couple of teen romances, I met my wife. We ran away together. We lived together and eventually got married. I often tried to talk her into sexual activities she felt uncomfortable with, but I was satisfied for a while with just one woman. I kept looking at porn and getting advice from sex magazines and other guys, and I was always trying to find a way to have sex with another woman and not lose the one that I had. On December 20th, 1977, a major change took place in my life. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. The change in my behavior was immediate and noticeable. Matter of fact, about half of my vocabulary disappeared overnight. No foul language came out of my lips anymore. A couple of days later, God miraculously and instantly removed all desire for tobacco. One evening, I went to bed a smoker. Next, next morning, I woke up free. I truly had become a new person. I began studying the Bible and 
eventually received ministerial credentials. Life was good. Not perfect, but good. After a while, I occasionally viewed porn and sometimes masturbated, but I'd ask God's forgiveness and promise I wouldn't do it again. I was sincere, and I figured I took care of it. Now, I flirted quite a bit, but I didn't see it as flirting. So I'd explain to my wife why she was wrong to think of what I was doing as that. It just wasn't flirting at all. I looked at other women, but I applied the theory that just because a person's on a diet, it doesn't mean they can't look at the menu. Then a pattern began to develop and it became very strong. A pattern of committing some type of sexual sin, whether it be looking, flirting, viewing porn, self-pleasuring, and then asking forgiveness and moving on. And during this time, I became a pastor of a church. Now, first, I returned to the more righteous behavior. But eventually, I started flirting again and practicing the same old habits. This pattern continued, but what you might call the level of sin slowly grew. After a couple of years, I started working a job in addition to pastoring. The job provided more opportunities to see women, talk to them, flirt with them. Then I entered the computer age. Alone and with the door shut under the guise of studying for the next sermon, I started visiting chat rooms. I'd lend a sympathetic ear to vulnerable women. I'd offer advice. Next, I'd openly seek to find out if they were interested in meeting, either on camera or in person. Eventually, I met a woman for a short affair. My wife developed great detective skills, and she discovered what I was doing. We fought, but we decided that God wanted us to stay together, so we tried to work things out. It really didn't work. I ended up leaving home, leaving my church, and resigning my credentials as a minister. I found another woman to manipulate and began another affair. My wife filed for legal separation, actually as a precursor to divorce. At first, that seemed like a, a solution for me. I was sure God was wanting me to marry this other woman, and that was just a way of making sure that all would be forgiven and by him, and it, it would go on, and life would just be grand. Well, eventually, after dealing with an attorney and going to court, my wife being granted legal separation, I woke up. At least I thought I did. We received considerable counseling, and then we got back together. After a while, we started back to church together. I obtained ministerial credentials again, and we seemed to make progress. I was back on the right path. In time, the pattern of regression began again, though. At first, I felt terrible about repeating any of the past behaviors. But once again, I'd pray asking forgiveness. I'd promise not to do it again, and I'd go on with life. I dealt with guilt by telling myself God had forgiven me, and I was now clean in his sight. Then I'd commit some sexual sin again and repeat the whole procedure. And eventually I started another affair. That time I was more careful. It still bothered me after I'd been with a woman and had sex, but asking forgiveness and going on with life became a normal way of life. When the affair ended, I actually felt relieved. I thanked God and once more promised never to do it again. It didn't take long, though, to start searching again. This pattern went on, not for a few months, but for years. As technology improved, I found secret ways of texting, uh, dating apps, many other ways to contact prospective conquests. I began talking with other women, searching out sex partners more and more. Whenever my wife was gone, I'd get busy looking for a woman. 
I even started texting secretly while she was in the room with me. I met woman after woman for sex. And each time I'd feel worse afterward than I felt the last time. I literally cried and asked God to deliver me. I'd confess and ask forgiveness. And I believed I had received it. I'd cancel email accounts, delete website accounts, and purpose not to open them again. Sometimes I'd go for days, sometimes weeks, and even a few months on occasion. But I always went back to the same behavior. I'd open new accounts. I'd find ways to reopen the old ones. I'd beg God to deliver me like he had from tobacco. I knew he could do it. Why wasn't he doing this? I mean, he had the power. I, I truly believed he had the power. I knew he had the power, and I believed in him. Well, finally, I'd had enough. Wednesday, June 5th, 2019. I decided that I needed to talk to somebody, but I knew what any of the fellow ministers would say or any other Christian. So I thought, well, I'll talk to a social worker. I confessed what I'd been doing and the fear that I was addicted to sex. We made an appointment for the upcoming Monday. Now, the Saturday before my appointment, a woman from our church confronted me with information she had about me setting up a meeting with a woman. Now, this same woman from the church and I had previously had sex a few times before she started coming to church. Well, now that her and her husband started attending, we met once and decided, well, we better cut it off. Now she had evidence of my behavior with other women. I admitted to it and explained my situation, hoping she'd be silent. I was afraid she wouldn't be quiet, though, so I decided if I told my wife about making the appointment with a social worker, confessing and justifying what the other woman knew, I'd be all right. I also figured I'd better tell the pastor the same story before the woman did. The trouble was I couldn't get hold of him. The line was busy. She was already spreading the news. She contacted everyone she knew in the church and anyone she thought was friend or family, and of course, our pastor. Well, then my pastor called me later that same day, and I told him my version. On Sunday, I felt like everybody knew. Everybody was friendly, but standoffish. It's like there was a wall or a barrier between us. I was a Sunday school teacher and a singer. The pastor had said I'd have to step down as leader. He told me that after church. And then later after church that Sunday afternoon, I got a call from the pastor telling me I was no longer welcomed at the church. Five days later, Monday, June 10th, my wife woke me up. She was on the phone with a cousin of mine who's a great woman of God. The phone was on speakers. My cousin shared with me how I had allowed the devil to creep in and take over my life. And I agreed with her. The Gospel of John, the 10th chapter and 10th verse, talked about Jesus referring to the devil, saying, The thief cometh not, but for to kill, steal, and destroy. I am come they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. She asked if I wanted deliverance. I assured her I definitely wanted it. She began to pray with me, leading me in prayer. My wife stood next to me praying also. As I prayed out loud, God began freeing me. My wife said she could see a physical change when the presence of God returned to me as I was delivered from my addiction instantly. As a sign, God took away a limp that I had developed after having back surgery. That wasn't the end of the story, however. I had to be honest with my wife and tell her the whole story truthfully without justifying my actions and ask her to forgive me. She was willing to forgive she was wounded terribly. I hurt my wife and family very deeply. Healing needed to begin for them also. 
and she needed some time without me around. So I moved across the street into a camper that we have. Now, later that same Monday, I went to the appointment that I'd scheduled with the social worker. I told her all that had taken place. And in consequent visits, my wife sometimes went with me. We were also able to see a therapist for couple counseling. My wife was able to see a therapist also. God had worked it out. What seemed like an unrecoverable act of betrayal on my part opened the door for healing from the damage of a lifetime of deviant sexual behavior. Both the therapists that we had were Christians. The couple's therapist was even an ordained minister in Church of God. A biblical truth came to light. The Apostle Paul had written and said, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. That's in Romans, the 8th chapter and 28th verse, if you want to look it up. Well, God immediately started me in what I call a condensed, intensified version of Celebrate Recovery's 12 steps. Quickly, at the beginning of this journey, I realized why God had not previously delivered me. At that point, the answer seemed simple. Yet he had eluded me multiple times. I mean, over and over and over, the answer had eluded me over all those years. See, every time I'd confess my wrongs, I sincerely wanted forgiveness. I sincerely wanted deliverance. I wanted to be done with it. I wanted it to be over. But the problem rested in the fact that I didn't turn away from it completely. I failed to lock every door and nail shut every window of my spiritual house to prevent the entry of the thief. I deleted accounts to dating sites and hookup pages, but there were ways to recover them. I closed email accounts that could recover passwords and contacts. The myriad methods to re-enter the ways I'd used to contact women were numerous, and I knew just about all of them. I wanted forgiveness. I wanted freedom from the guilt and the sin. I wanted my life back under God's control, but I wanted it all without true repentance. Repentance meant that I would have to turn away from not only the sinful actions, but all the things that could lead me to committing them again. I wanted to hang on to some part of control rather than let God have it all. With my wife's help, we locked doors, we nailed windows shut, we put up bars in a spiritual sense, and Ask God to show us anything that we were leaving out. My wife had forgiven me. Most importantly, God had forgiven me. Now it was time to seek forgiveness from the many others I had hurt. It seemed logical that family should come first. The one person I had not asked forgiveness of was always around, yet always overlooked. I needed to really forgive myself. One short bit of scripture came to mind. It follows what we call the Lord's Prayer. Jesus spoke the words in Matthew 6.15. He said, But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, I had always applied that to forgiving others. I had thought about it. I'd mentioned it, actually, in the past about forgiving myself for things, but I had never really looked at it and really thought about it sincerely as forgiving myself. If God was willing to forgive me, who was I to keep hanging on to unforgiveness? One of our children and their spouse were the first outside our household to be approached. They were willing to meet. My wife went with me, and I poured out my heart. I confessed my sin. I asked forgiveness. And to my surprise, they believed instant deliverance just didn't happen like that. The healing of my limp didn't even testify to them. 
They wanted some tangible proof of my sincerity, and I had nothing more to offer. They decided to take a let's wait and see position. And as I've seen changes in my behavior and marriage, our fellowship has begun to be restored. My remaining children had disowned me. They made it clear I was not to contact them or any other family. They warned her mother it was all just an act and she should leave. Trying to make amends with them took longer and proved more difficult. They had demanded no contact, so really I had nothing to lose by sending them each a letter of apology and asking forgiveness. I both initially rejected the possibility I was sincere. Now they continue to witness the new me. We have family gatherings again, and they've been slower to accept the changes as authentic, but we continue to close the gap that once stood between them, their families, my wife, and my wife and I as a couple. Close friends we lost due to my actions are slowly coming around. Knowing God changes people, seeing it happen to someone, and experiencing it personally, all differ. Seeing God work in my life daily still amazes me. I no longer look at women with desire. Looking at women with lust in my heart was normal. Staring at a woman happened as a, a normal reflex without any conviction about it. Now even noticing a woman's physical attributes is recognized as an attempt of the devil to draw me back into a lifestyle I've been delivered of. If my eyes are drawn to something I shouldn't look at, I can look away. Diverting my gaze is only part of it. I began to thank God that I'm not the person I was and that I have no desire to pursue anyone other than my wife. I would do this each time that my eyes were drawn away to something else. I began to praise God when I faced the opportunity to sin. When any suggestion comes to mind, through God's power, I'm able to rebuke the devil and move on. The book of James says to resist the devil and he'll flee. The suggestions the devil makes now seem as ridiculous to me as the idea of picking up a pack of cigarettes after over 40 years of a nicotine-free life. I can't even stand the smell of cigarettes now. Inviting sexual impurity back into my life is a similar stench to my spiritual nose. I just don't want it. The internet used to be a challenge. I'd start out looking at email or social media, and I'd find myself going to my secret accounts or websites. Most of the time, it seemed impossible to prevent, much less stop. It was almost like watching someone else's fingers type as they glided over the keyboard. Clicking the mouse happened without consciously thinking about it. I just did it. It was all as if it were pre-programmed and as if I had to do it. Now that God's freed me, no desire exists to search out any impure, immoral communications or media. The desire, it's simply gone. After so many years of not being able to control my desires and feeling it impossible to bring a stop to my actions, God's given me a different perspective or vantage point to look at these things of my past addiction. No attraction exists. I can't imagine any reason to find it desirous. I know it holds no more satisfaction than sticking a foot into a fire to warm up because I feel a chill. My wife and I enjoy each other's company. We desire to be together. And we now work together to improve our relationship. I'm thankful for her. I don't have to hide anything from her. I used to think I was protecting her by not telling her what I was facing, not what I was feeling, particularly what I was doing. And that kind of protection, it only allowed small things to snowball into enormous battles, which surely would destroy her, me, and our marriage. God provided a way through commitment to him and his word 
for us to melt the avalanche of those multiple snowballs into puddles of water. Those things I was hiding from her were the things she needed to know in order to be a helpmate and aid me in seeing victory. As I was learning to confide in my wife, we experienced ups and downs. It's like going from Mount Everest to Death Valley. We In, in the wee hours of the morning, sometimes we'd call my cousin, the cousin who prayed through the deliverance. She received more than one phone call. And her patience in praying with us and providing godly direction was invaluable. She truly was God's gift to us during a most difficult time. Although the pastor of the church we had been attending told me to leave, one man in that church stuck by. Matter of fact, the morning before receiving the pastor's phone call telling me not to return, I had gone to the altar to pray. This man came to my side. He said to me, Brother Bill, I don't know if any of this is true or not. I just want you to know I don't care. You're still my brother, and I love you. He and his wife made themselves available to us by phone call and personal visits. They were shoulders to lean on that provided much needed support. Well, prior to making arrangements to go to another church, I called the pastor. I'd known him for several years, and now he was at a church in the area, and we were thinking about attending it. But I was concerned how it might affect the congregation if anyone knew of my past exploits. I hadn't just cheated a few times. When trying to recall all the events and write down for my wife names that people I'd been with and cheated on her with and, and things that I had done, I lost the ability to identify anybody after naming uh, somewhere over 40 women. I'd been involved with several others, but their names, I, I, I didn't know them or I couldn't remember them. I explained this to my friend. I told him I didn't want to just show up and maybe have someone recognize me and pose a problem for him and his church. He not only welcomed us to the church, but became a partner to me in accountability. We contact each other at least weekly to continue to pray for each other. When Celebrate Recovery's 12 steps were first suggested as something I should study and complete, my initial act reaction to that was, uh, uh, no, I mean, it was all negative. They were a good thing, but after all, I'd read them, I knew what they were, and there wasn't anything contained in those steps that God had not already brought me through. A desire existed from the moment of deliverance to find some avenues of sharing my experience with others. I never doubted God could gain glory out of this, and others could be encouraged that they too could find deliverance from whatever hurt, hang-up, or, or habit controls their life. As I prayed about it, I began to realize something about the 12-step program that CR presents. Those steps represent a set of commitments and principles to help get us to and keep us in a position to follow after God's will. Each step has a biblical principle behind it. No one is too hopeless, no one too suicidal, no one too messed up or hung up that God doesn't already have freedom, redemption, and peace worked out for. He has a plan which goes far beyond 12 steps. He can and will go through each step of our lives with us if we allow him to. He has a plan that works for everyone. He has a way to live and live happily, no matter the hurts, habits, or hang-ups that have come along. After what God has brought me through and delivered me from, no doubt exists to that. If you can hear me now and you have a problem, God has the answer. It's no joke when the scripture states, the truth shall set you free, or he who the Son, meaning Jesus, sets free, is free indeed. Jesus is the truth, the life, and the way. Now, as I'm writing out this testimony. My wife and I have been married 48 years. 
if God can set me free from violating the honor of marriage for all those years and the childhood experiences that developed my twisted outlook, nothing's too tough for him. Anyone listening to this, know this. God is already aware of your situation. You won't shock him by anything you admit to. He knows and loves you. He wants to bring you peace, safety, and stability, as well as any needed deliverance. We have a motto, or you might call it a catchphrase at our church. Everybody needs Jesus. Well, it's also true, Jesus wants everybody. No matter where you're at in this walk we call life, Jesus is ready and waiting for you to accept his invitation to a new life. If you're ready to start a new life with him, then pray this following prayer with me out loud. And if you're wondering why I said out loud, it, it's simple. The Bible tells us, Romans, the 10th chapter and the 10th verse, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If we make that confession, 1 John 1, 9 and 10 tells us, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. So now if you've decided you are ready to commit your life to God, then let's pray together. Just repeat after me, meaning this from your heart. Dear God, I admit I have sinned and am a sinner. I am sorry for my sins and I'm asking your forgiveness. I believe Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sins. And I want him to be my Lord, my boss, now and forever. I am willing to turn away from anything you show me is wrong. I commit my life to you and will do my best with your help to follow your word, the Bible. Thank you, God, for hearing me and for giving me just now. Amen. It's important now to follow up, to put your faith in action. Tell everyone you can what just happened, that you became a real Christian. Some call it being born again, getting right with God, being saved. There's other terms, but the term isn't as important as sharing that it happened. If you don't feel different right now, don't worry about it. The feeling will come as you continue to place your faith in the fact that God saved you just now. Talking to God, what we commonly call prayer, is extremely important. Just be yourself. Talk openly and honestly with him. Reading his word daily will help you get a firm start. I suggest reading the Gospel of John. The theme of this gospel was actually addressed to new believers, so it's a perfect place to start. Now, of course, getting involved in a good Bible-believing church will also help you find out more about God and this new life. Regardless of whatever kinds of hurts you've experienced, the bad habits, or even addictions that have been part of your life, or hang-ups that you've had over anything, I'd like to also encourage you, find a place near you where Celebrate Recovery meets. You can find a listing of local groups on the internet at locator.org crgroups.info. That's locator.crgroups.info. Now you're ready. You're ready to not only tell others that you've become a Christian, but you can help them do the same. You can help them by praying a prayer similar to the one that you just prayed. You can lead them in it and share with them your testimony. Thank you for listening to Redneck Theology. Feel free to send any questions or topic suggestions by email 
to redneck-theology, that's all one word, at gmail.com. This is your host, Bill Witte, inviting you to join me again next time for a little redneck theology.